Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us for Three Women, Three Ways. I don't know what happened there. Sometimes we have a lot of fun. Sometimes we get pretty serious. Um, today, um, we're going to be talking about campus sexual assault and what on earth we can do about it. And our guest is Jonathan Kalen. Am I saying that right, Jonathan? Yep, perfect. Is it Kalen? Okay, great. Yep. Jonathan Kalen um, is kind of a uh, an interesting young man because he decided that he wanted to do something about the problem of campus sexual assault. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Heather. Uh, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. What, Jonathan, I didn't ask you your age. I didn't ask you if you were currently attending a school. But uh, what made you get interested in this topic? I presume it's because you were on ca- on a campus somewhere. Is that right? Um, yeah. So I, I just graduated uh, this past May, and I'm 23 years old. Um, mm-hmm. And there's actually... Uh, there's actually two stories like around how I became interested in this, and one one was uh, a story that I felt w- was uh, multiple conscious decisions, and then the uh, other one is one that's a little bit more long term, but it, it feels like it's connected to uh, some of the subconscious, which made me think that uh, this campus sexual assault was such an urgent issue. Um, you know, as as a man, uh, I was the captain of my basketball team. Uh, you know, the question of why do you care about this is one that I had to ponder a lot because a lot of people are Oh, asking. really? Um, That's interesting. <laughs> so, gee, Jonathan, you're half the human race. Your gender is half the human race. Why would you care about this? Okay, got it. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so, um, exactly, yeah. Um, so, the... The first, the first story is uh, I'm a I'm a sophomore at Colby College in Waterville, Maine, and um, in the spring I was named captain of my college's basketball team to enter into the uh, into into my junior year, and I was named president of a group called Male Athletes Against Violence. And uh, at okay. this time, because of a a somewhat uh, high profiler public uh sexual misconduct case amongst some athletes um the conversation on campus was pretty uh heated around sexual assault on campus and for you know certain reasons that were kind of out of my control i I found myself as not just a participant in both of the sides that felt somewhat divided but actually um a leader so being in the uh athletic space as a captain and being in the anti-violence space as a president of a group, um, these were sort of the stereotypical two sides of this debate um, with, with more of the athletes sort of empathizing with their fellow athletes and the sure. anti-violence activists uh, you know, em- empathizing with the survivors. And, you know, like we sort of know that boxes are, are bad in general, but 
this is sort of painting the picture of my, my story. And so that, that context uh, ran concurrent with a, with a, a, a party tank top that caught some attention um, on the Internet and on campuses across the nation that there was impact neon font that read um, party with sluts. And wait a minute, what did it say? It said party with sluts. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I suppose that could be uh, more memorable than partying with saints. I'm not sure, but I see. What, I'm sorry? I said I suppose that could be more memorable experience than partying partying with saints, but you know, or or nuns. Oh or yeah, yeah. But yeah. You know. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, so the the interesting thing that happened was when I talked when I talked to the people who were sort of somewhat in, like not necessarily in favor of these shirts, but like maybe would don one. Um, you know, they'd say this shirt is just about being in college and we want to have fun uh, and party. And then when I was in the anti-violence space. You know the conversations about slut shaming and the double standards for women and uh, rape culture on campus, and how these tank shops were just basically a celebration or a glorification of that. So with that in mind, yeah. the thought process, the, the cognitive conscious thought, thought process was okay. So this this theme is catching the attention of of uh, like mainstream college culture. What if what if we could uh, use this form to amplify something positive instead of something derogatory? Uh, so with that, you know, delete delete sluts and putting consent. Um, and so as, as I was working on this, um, in addition to my work in uh, Male Athletes Against Violence, um, I, started to, I started to ponder, you know, uh, it first started off as frustration. You know, why, why does it feel like me and this other guy, Eric Barthold, are the two guys sort of religiously coming to Male Athletes Against Violence meetings um, and really trying to engage the campus in this, um, why, aren't, why aren't more people stepping up? Uh, and then I reflected that question onto myself, and I, I asked myself, you know, wh- okay, so you're only going to just get more frustrated pondering this. Why don't you ask yourself why this is so important to you? Um, and that took me back to when I was 12 years old. Um, when I was 12, my, my father uh, died suddenly in a car accident, and uh, I'm an yep. only child. And I grew up with my mother. Um, and so subconsciously, I sort of realized that I had this um, right right around the time where you're, quote, unquote, uh, becoming a man, this sort of subconscious education or, you know, lack, lack of education around this whole idea of masculinity. Um, and so I, I felt like I became a little bit conscious of this, but I never necessarily saw it hurt anybody until while, while on campus, uh, a woman shared with me her story of being sexually assaulted while on campus. And uh, that, that's when these sort of ideas around gender, um, particularly around, around masculinity, um, sort of, sort of uh, I, I saw it, and again, this is like what I'm presuming happened in my subconscious. Um, I sort of saw how that event or, and hearing, hearing her story um, connected the dots that, you know, this, this thing that, uh, this thing about masculinity that I've always been curious about, um, that I've been sort of observing without, without my father's influence, uh, it can, it can actually, um, you know, hurt, hurt people if, 
yes. It's sort of interpreted, <laughs> interpreted, uh, interpreted incorrectly or ter- interpreted uh, toxically. Um, and so, I, I mean, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm never, never quite sure. I'm not, I'm not a psychologist myself, but that's a, that's a sort of longer story of uh, what was going on in my, yeah. in my subconscious that I feel led me to, to make those uh, conscious decisions. Um, well, and I applaud you for making those conscious decisions. Um, I've seen that before, you know, in, uh, with young men who don't have a strong uh, or any, you know, real uh, masculine influence in their lives. And, and I've seen young men who, um, uh, for example, will go out and uh, change jobs frequently from car repair to um, uh, gardening to, you know, anything that's uh, – traditional male-type job, going from one job to the next, trying to learn what it means to be a guy. Um, and so I don't think you're, even though your circumstances are probably pretty unique, I don't think that your situation of not having that strong uh, masculine uh, guide uh, is necessarily a, a unique one, and I applaud you for finding a way um, to recognize that sometimes that strong masculine influence isn't always positive, not in, at least not in uh, 100% ways. As, and in, in interest of fairness, probably our feminine influence isn't 100% always positive either. So, uh-huh. um, But, yeah, that that's uh, that's a, an interesting approach to this. I want to throw this out to our callers. Um, please give us a call. If you have a question for Jonathan, we're going to talk about how he got active in, in this role, and we're going to talk about what his uh, organization, what his movement uh, is all about. We have a chat line open. If you go to the website, www.blogtalkradio.com slash three women three ways, and you are on the website there, you can uh, click on to our chat line, our chat room, and join us with questions. Or if you'd like to uh, talk to us out loud, you can do that. And that phone number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Or join us on the chat line. Jonathan, some of the, the the numbers about uh, campus sexual assault are pretty startling. And as a matter of fact, last fall, I think it was just in September, the president came uh, through with uh, a pretty strong directive about uh, doing something about campus sexual assault. So this is an issue that's definitely in the news. Um, surprisingly, well, maybe not surprisingly, there is an organization called American uh, Association of University Women, and they're one of those women's organizations that have been around for, you know, since Buffalo's and uh, have been active in the women's movement, just quietly doing their thing, and I think we tend to think of them as a lot of old women, but I've got to tell you, when I do my research, Jonathan, I find a lot of really pertinent information on their website, um, and going to their website, um, they have... Um, uh, several things that they want to talk about with uh, campus sexual assault. And one is that only about 5% of rapes and attempted rapes of college students are even reported either to campus authorities or to uh, law enforcement in general. And that's because there are all sorts of barriers to reporting sexual assault on a campus. And what we've heard about in the news, and we've seen radio shows, et cetera, that some of those barriers involve the campuses themselves. They don't want to 
uh, have this coming to light. They don't want it to reflect on their image. When people uh, go with mom and dad to pick out a college, they want safety. They don't want to hear about rape statistics. Is that your experience, Jonathan? Have you, is, there, is sexual assault underreported on campuses, and why? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so my my expertise, well, like what I feel like my expertise, at least through experience, has been less um, around understanding sort of the dynamics of, of campuses and colleges and, you know, are, are their motives uh, aligned with the safety of students? Um, and I, I applaud uh, the people who, who are um, researching and taking that on. Uh, but you know, in, inherent in the name of my organization, Party with Consent, we're we're sort of uh, looking at this on the cultural le- level. So, um, you know, the point in time where there is within our culture, uh, you know, men maybe in a heterosexual dynamic, men um, not totally getting uh, a number of places to discuss sexual consent and what sexual consent means. Um, and and you know having conversations with uh women on campus saying at times at times uh, when they share their stories even with with fellow women it's amongst their peers it's just what happens that's that's not a problem you didn't get raped um don't make a big deal out of this so what we're trying to bring to light uh around party with consent is is the idea that um you know our social settings uh should should be connected, uh, you know, when we think about our social settings and our times for celebration, it should be connected to um, a, a sort of being on the same page with people. And I think the the dynamic uh, through certain forms of media have uh, broadcasted this vision on campus that, you know, having fun has more to do with uh, hurting other people or breaking things or taking advantage of people. Than, than really like enjoying uh, mutual relationships, and mm-hmm. so our effort is really is really before what what I'm what I see myself working towards is speaking about the culture cultural level to to put somebody in a position to uh, re- report the sexual assault on campus um, through through a cultural lens to, to shift the culture that way and you know do do I think that college campuses uh, similarly have done you know the way our our cultural around culture around talking about sex and sexuality uh needs to be reflected on uh and can show up in the way that they uh you know report report sexual assault of course um but but yeah my my effort is less on sort of challenging campuses and more on uh challenging the albeit a little bit more abstract but uh culture at large Utah, there was a recent article in Voice Mail Magazine, M-A-L-E, Voice Mail Magazine, which I have to give a a plug to. It's a really, it's called Voice Mail, the magazine for changing men. And uh, I always find such interesting articles in in this publication. I know it's available online, and they also have a print version, but it's called Voice Mail, M-A-L-E, the magazine for changing men. And you had a recent article in there about partying with consent, and you talk about three basic points um, that you want to bring up. And the first one is you call the miscommunication fallacy. And that just, I I thought, boy, that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? 
that, that whole what is the miscommunication fallacy that you talk about? Yeah, so the so the miscommunication fallacy is essentially uh, the overall idea that it's it's basically putting more emphasis on the the sexy like the sex and sexual assault than the assault. Um, and the way that uh, oftentimes when I discuss with people who are talking about this or having this conversation for the first time, um, it's oftentimes easy for them to say, you know, there's a lot of gray space. There's, um, there's, uh, there's a lot of, um, it's just like, this is something that uh, can happen if people are too intoxicated and then, um, and then they just make some decisions and people like, uh, didn't communicate well enough about it. And, and then all of a sudden it's, you know, and then all of a sudden in, you know, the traditional case, then all of a sudden it's a woman pledging this, uh, human rights violation against, uh, the perpetrator. And, um, that, that whole notion of, well, she just changed her mind the the next morning regret and, uh, she just changed her mind, so now she's yelling rape. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah, it's a much more uh, eloquent way of putting it. Uh, eloquent way of putting it. So, um, and so, you know, the from from my experience and my research, uh, the leading the leading research uh, on on the prototype of uh, a rapist on campus is actually that uh, over, I believe, somewhere in the 90s percentile uh it will it will be a man whether the the uh the victim is a woman or a man um and he is most likely to be a repeat offender um yeah so so with that in mind like that that whole idea right there sort of sort of debunks um this idea that you know there's just these guys sort of like making these mistakes um it sort of prompts prompts us to think more deeply about the fact that, you know, as I discussed in that piece, there's sort of um, a comfort that we can have when we say, you know, oh, nobody at this really prestigious college, like, uh, is a rapist. Nobody wakes up doing it, like, thinking that. It's just, like, there's all these cultural things at play. It's, like, college, you got to experiment. Um, and this and this research really debunks that. Um, it sort of points to the fact I think that, that, that uh, the, 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 I, I think that a lot of times, People seem to think that this is some sort of a of a game, and she'll say no, but she wants you to keep asking, and then she'll say no, and then she wants you to keep asking, and then um, eventually, if you just keep asking, then she'll say yes, and that's what she wanted to start with, and so the idea that uh, a no isn't really a no. I mean, if somebody asks you, do you, um, you know, want to want to buy a new car, you say no. Nobody, nobody kind of questions whether or not that's a serious no. You know, uh, if somebody says, "Do you, you know, are, are, do you need to go to the bathroom?" No. I mean, nobody right. questions those kinds of no's. But for some reason, when you add sex to the picture, no's aren't really, no's are questionable. Is that your experience? Yeah, exactly. And you know, and that, and that's what I'm talking about around the uh, sort of dynamic around uh, where where young men and women are learning. Uh, learning sexual consent from um because you can you can tell the dangers of you know men men learning that uh you know a no is just uh you know ask me again and you can see the dangers in uh educating women that you know 
in ways that I can't uh, understand because I've never been a woman, um, the dynamic of sort of trusting your emotions of wanting to be intimate with someone, um, but realizing that on a cultural level, um, you're sort of not allowed to or not supposed to. You're supposed to say say no. You're not supposed to be open about your um, sexual desires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of that stuff is really old-fashioned. That's all, you know, 20th century stuff. But the fact is it lingers, doesn't it? Those those attitudes and those behaviors tend to linger. It's it's you know they're not something where someday you know a generation wakes up and says, well, we're not playing that game anymore, um, because those things do have a lingering effect in our culture. I think. Do you agree? Oh yeah, of course. I mean the you know the the dynamic around talking about uh, you know the 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 rights of of groups that have been historically oppressed. Um, you know, oftentimes it's a, it's a it, it it has to go farther than the surface, right? So if if people yeah. are saying, you know, well, women have the right to vote, so now there's equal rights, it's not it's not putting into uh, into perspective how how sort of our our cultural um, our cultural understandings of things um, you know still affect us today. And I think you hit the nail right on the head uh, with the way that we talk about sexual consent being something you know that. Uh, is I would say still a little bit pervasive in our culture today um, around with all of the uh, empowerment of women speaking with many women talking about, you know, they're still uh, nervous to speak openly about their sexual desires um, in ways that they feel they can't uh, because they identify as a woman. But, you know, definitely it's something that still uh, lingers from all the ways that we've thought about um, sexuality and I'd say that with the sexual liberation um, it's actually yeah. made it a little bit a little bit more um, confusing for some because um, you know when I talk to people from my mother's generation she sort of says back in the day like men protected women um, mm. and that's why everything was okay. Well some men and, protected know, some women. Right. Well, <laughs> they so, still yeah, had rape so, back then. <laughs> no, well that's, that's the point right is that I think I think Gloria Steinem put it, um, you know, when I was growing up, domestic violence wasn't even a term. It was just it was just life. Yeah. Um exactly. and so in in the same sort of vein, um going uh so so moving into this space where, you know you know, we still have these sort of cultural dynamics that are saying, you know, women have to be somewhat you know, they, they can't never have sex because then they're prude and they can't have sex all the time because then they're a slut. And then, you know, guys are sort of um, supposed to be protective in some ways, but like supposed to be, um, you know, the, the sort of the liberation around sex has has left a lot of lingering questions um, around around. Well, and I think that uh, again, I'm an, I'm probably more of your mother's generation, um, but it it seems to me that this whole idea that guys protect they protected some guys or some some women the sisters the mm-hmm. mothers you know those were the ones the you know the girlfriends and you know and the the wives those were the ones that were protected anybody else was fair game. Um, so, you know, I mean, there was, there was, you know, a, a very definitely a double standard um, for what women deserve to be protected, um, and I, I think that that also lingers. 
there was a woman, I believe she was in Columbia. She was the one uh, who started, uh, she was assaulted on campus, did not get any kind of a response from campus. I believe it was Columbia. And mm-hmm. she started carrying her mattress around with her. Do you recall that in the news? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think her name is Sokolo. I'm not sure, but she yeah, made Sokowitz. a statement. Sokowitz, okay. Um, I she made a I'm statement that um, the campus, uh, uh, and I suspect that this could be, uh, um, you know, uh, universally applied, not just on campuses. But her point was that the 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 guy on campus who sexually assaults is not the loser who can't get a date, not the socially um, um, repressed person who who can't have regular um, contacts and, and relationships. It's not the loser. The sexual assault perpetrator on campuses is the guy who's used to getting his way. He's the popular guy, the the jock, the the whatever. He's the guy who's used to getting his way. And it's when he doesn't get his way that he becomes more aggressive in insisting that he gets his way. Is that consistent with what you've you've seen and and how you interpret this? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm always I'm always careful to you know pigeonhole um, you know with, without the empirical data um, you know and and, stere- and stereotype who is the uh, the prototypical. Um, Rapist, but I think I think the point that uh, Emma makes is is really the the one that she does make that's really sound is that like it's anybody. Um, we we put these pictures in our head uh, that you know it's that this who like uh, doesn't doesn't know how to like speak with women or we we put it in our head that it's you know uh, this person who's going to jump out of the bushes or you know uh, somebody who's mm-hmm. lingering in a a uh, gas station uh, toilet, like or bathroom, um, and sort of, sort of the uh, the the truth behind it is, you know, it, and you mentioned uh, rain a little bit earlier. Uh, their statistics show, you know, that a a high percentage—I don't know what it is right now—of uh, sexual assaults happen within, you know, a one one mile radius of of somebody's uh, residence. And so, you know, for me, what was really um, enlightening. When I, I told you about that woman who shared with me her story, and I thought, you know, college campuses, there's no way that this could happen on college campuses. And then I read that statistic, and I'm like, this is a hotbed for that. You know, you, ha- you have um, all these students living within one mile of each other. Um, and so, the, you know, what what Emma hits on, uh, I believe, I see is uh, the the idea that uh, this this guy oftentimes we can see him be a good guy in a lot of other ways. We can see him be a great student. We can see him be popular. We can see him be, um, you know, as she said, getting his getting his way everywhere. And uh, that doesn't sort of um, that doesn't put him out of question uh, as potentially uh, being a rapist or a serial rapist. Um, and well, that, and that's that consistent that with, with most here. of these behaviors, Jonathan. I mean, it's it's not, you know, I mean, how many, how often have you read the news article where Joe Blow was arrested for, you know, uh, um, pedophilia or arrested for, mm-hmm. you know, beating up his wife, and, and the first thing they do is go to the neighbors and, and family, and they're mm-hmm. told how wonderful Joe Blow was, and he was such a great guy, and da-da-da-da-da. You know, nobody can ever believe it because Joe Blow was so wonderful. Well, you know, this this... Perpetrators are wonderful, except 
to the people that they perpetrate their crimes. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I think that that's kind of typical to any other um, uh, illegal, aberrant behavior. In your article, Jonathan, you talked about this miscommunication fallacy, this idea that um, the good guys can't be the rapists, that that no really means yes if you just need to pers- you know you just need to pursue it, um, that um, you know just because she says no doesn't mean that she doesn't want to say yes and all that. That's your miscommunication fallacy. But then you point out a real communication error. What what do you mean when you say the real communication error? And you know what, Jonathan, yeah, so, before you answer, I'm going to throw out our phone number again. Um, give us okay. a call or hit, a, hit us up on the chat line. Um, our phone number is 646-378-0430. 646-378-0430. And I'd like to hear either your experiences about campus sexual assault or questions you might have for Jonathan or you know, find it, uh, ask him how how you can help out with his particular movement. So, Jonathan, the real communication error, what is that? Yeah, so I, I discussed uh, in this piece in uh, Voicemail Magazine, um, the real communication error is the one that I was hitting on a little bit earlier um, about the, the, the culture around sex and sexual consent and sexual assault. And um, the point that I like to make here is that um, – you know, some sometimes my work is discussed as sex, like uh, sexual consent education or consent education, and um, mm-hmm. my response oftentimes is, you know, that we if we haven't uh, had this conversation with, you know, students who have passed, um, you know, high school and into college, what what we're really doing at this point is is consent uneducation, um, and you know, particularly, and I and I can speak from my experience um, as as a guy. Um, you know, and uh, the experience being that uh, I really learned like what what it meant to engage with people with uh, people of the opposite or people of a different gender uh, in a sexual way through through these sort of comedies that uh, that sort of taught me or comedies or uh, you know for me it was really a lot of basketball movies too about college basketball um, that taught me you know this is this is what happens in college and this is you know what what you're supposed to be uh trying to do as as a heterosexual guy um who wants to not only be cool but uh you know also be be cared for and be in caring relationships and uh so i think the way the way that we've sort of uh defined consent is again going back to my earlier points is that it it's cool to you know take advantage of somebody from from this masculine lens uh it's it's cooler to take advantage of somebody and and i would say if you ask a student on campus right now it's sort of cooler to you know have a lot of drinks with someone and then dance with them all night and uh become sexually intimate from there it's uh, that's actually a little bit cooler um than you know prompting somebody to go on a date um or just just having any sort of conversation at all um and the the really the really interesting piece uh when you when you plug in uh the dynamic particularly in the, the male brain uh, around pornography is that uh pornography and sex scenes and music videos and TV shows uh and movies is that the funny thing is is that everything oftentimes when you're watching sex scenes the there isn't much of a conversation around consent um no 
and it's like it's smoother, the guy looks cooler, and all. And and the reality though is is that if you if you pan those if you pan that camera lens out, um, you're gonna see you know it might not be a table, but you're, it might be a manila of a a folder, um, and in there you're gonna see consent forms. And you're gonna see consent forms that every single um, actor actress on stage or on on film. Uh, signed to say I consent to having this done to me or doing this on camera, and um, so we're so we're sort of in my experience we're sort of taking that uh, those images and the images that aren't zooming the camera out and pro- projecting them onto our real life experiences and uh, and thinking thinking that talking about consent is you know not only not necessary but not cool. Um, and it's just and it's just really uh, far from the case. So I think you know the real communication error is that we don't we don't zoom back the lens when we talk about uh, those different forms of media around sex, um, and we don't and we don't sit down with uh, young people and tell them you know what you've been learning here is only part of the story when it comes to sexual consent. Well, and I think that, you know, you go back to your miscommunication uh, uh, fallacies. I think that um, I have heard a lot of conversations among uh, young men who poo-poo that whole notion of consent. They picture, they they make fun of it and say, just like you were saying about the, you know, official contracts, you know, do we have to have everything signed and blah, 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 and if we don't do that, then, you know. Uh, in other words, blowing the whole notion of consent out of proportion to ridicule it. And so I have heard conversations about consent, but I've heard them in disparaging ways. I've heard those conversations as, um, you know, something to, um, something as if it's ridiculous. Have you experienced that? Have you seen that? Oh, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, it's sort of uh, the, the, and, and, you know, it sort of, it sort of stems around fear, right? Is like, what, what is sort of prompting, uh, you know, what is prompting somebody uh, who wants to sort of uh, move forward and like sexually advance from from talking about it? You know, is is the is the implication that like saying that out loud might make the other person say no? Um, and you know that that's sort of the fear that results in saying like, what do I like? What do we need to like get get consent forms out and like sign papers? Um, and my my point with yeah. the uh, media thing. It's not necessarily that like you need to sign papers, but it's just the fact that everything you're seeing that has no conversation actually has a large amount of conversation that's happening with people who are fully clothed in rooms with desks with pens signing things. So if you're thinking mm-hmm. that in your own sexual experience that you don't even need to say any words, then you know something's just very very off. Um, and so yeah. with that in mind, the the idea that prompting prompting uh, Young people, in my, in my experience, particularly young men, uh, to to be cognizant uh, of the fact that number one, like this is this is just sort of uh, this is sort of the truth when it comes to media literacy. And number two, uh, you know what what are you so nervous about? You know, like if if somebody <laughs> were to say if somebody were to say no to your sexual advance, um, you know, then then that's not somebody that you want to have sex with because you don't want to have sex with somebody who doesn't want to have sex with you. I, I realize there's, you know, and that goes back to sort of the, the cultural norms and that's, that's where you see this get really messy is because in certain ways men are taught, like, you know, love the chase, be enjoy that. Um, and that's sort of also a part of the culture that we're trying to shift is as, as a guy, 
you know, I'm trying to make it clear that relationships that are built on inspiration, love, um, care, and uh, authenticity and openness are, like, outweigh those that rely on deceit, manipulation, and coercion, um, you know, by by a hundred times. Um, and well, and in, I think that's moment, a good message for both genders, uh, you know, and no matter, you know, no matter what genders are involved, I think that's a, a good and valid um, argument to make. You know, it, it's not just the guy, you know, attitude and all that kind of stuff. I, I think that, um, you know, both both all all genders, all all uh, pursuits. I think what you had to say is is very valid for all of that. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. You talk particularly, based on your own experience, I suppose, but you talk particularly in the article about the contradiction with athletics. And I think we've talked a little bit about that. <clears throat> Excuse me, but could you go into more of what you mean by the contradiction with athletics? Yeah, definitely. And before before I jump right into this, um, you know, there there are literally hundreds of, of theories about party consent that are going on in my head all the time. So I... I uh, while these are the three ones that I wrote about in Voicemail Magazine, they're by by no means like the only the only um, the only parts of the movement as I see it. Um, well, that going into this, so my my experience um, in athletics was an incredible one. Uh, I feel like I've learned so much from uh, playing basketball. Basketball has been you know my passion all the way up through you know just about ten months ago when I graduated from college. Um, and it was just a really a driving force in my life, and and it, it taught me a ton. Um, and but but what I think at times uh, the the conversation that's that's missing is um, what I talk about with this contradiction. Um, when you talk in athletic realms, these two these two um, axioms or or um, ideas are always are always posed. They're often posed in different conversations depending depending on you know what better supports uh, athletics and um so one one idea is um what happens on the field stays on the field or what happens on the court stays on the court uh as far as particularly when you think about um contact contact athletics um you know there's there's certain there's certain ideas and ways that you have to talk to people um and ways that you have to see your opponent that uh that many times we're asked, you know, leave leave that on the field. Like uh, athletics is a is a different place than your social life. Um, but in the same in in the same uh, sort of uh, dialogue about athletics, we we very well could can say, you know, as I just said, uh, start this this uh, section is that I've learned a ton from from basketball. So in in essence, I actually have. Uh, taken a lot uh that happened on the court and took it off the court. Um mm-hmm. and so with that with with that in mind, um that's that's what I feel like at, at times gets wrapped up and go, going back to sort of the two sides of the debate that I was talking about earlier, the, the athletic side and the anti violence side is is that um you know on extreme voices on both sides are saying like all those people are so sensitive and you know we need to get rid of athletics and you know within within it there's something that says you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of good that comes out of athletics um but but let's not let all that good just overshadow some of the bad things that are happening that that for in in my understanding are definitely uh within our control 
Um, and the way the way that I describe that, you know, is, is the idea that you know, talking, talking, particularly talking about opponents um, and talking about competition, and the way that you know we're supposed to dominate our oppo- opponents, you know, in, in ways we'll even say, you know, we're trying to kill the other team, um, you know, in ways that you even may hear, hear one, like a couple times, like we're trying to rape those guys. Um, huh. And you really. Know, I, I've never, I, I, you know, I've nev- never been, you know, I mean, that's an environment that I've never been exposed to, really. But really, that surprises me. Yeah, um, and so, and so, it's 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 connected. It's connected to this idea of like, be be ultra competitive. Um, and I think in spaces like competition is important. Um, however, however, when you see sort of these uh, ideas around domination um, and you know, sort of making others embarrassed and making others look funny, um, and you see, and you see, they're not sort of being a filter that says, you know, this is what you keep on the field. Um, feel confident in taking ideas of teamwork, leadership, self-discipline, um, healthy competition. Feel confident in taking all of that off the field. But you know, ideas, ideas around domination, ideas around turning turning opponents into objects. You know, like the the way you talk about it in coaching is the X's and O's. X's and O's are turning people into X's and O's, right? So that's sort of a notion that you don't you don't want to be thinking of a person as just like a circle, you know, or an X, like when they're walking through their life, uh, because then you're going to equate them to, you know, being less than human, which is uh, sort of part of part of what happens when you're playing sports, because you're you're playing uh, against the opponent and in a, a fair a fair play field, you're you're trying to win, um, and I think. That when that's when that's taken off the court, that's that's the dynamic uh, around athletics that I think is a conversation that uh, that uh, could be ha- being had more. Okay, um, and certainly there's no lack of discussion about athletics and sexual assault issues. So um, when you started your organization, Party with Consent, is it a formal organization or is it just a movement? And um, where do you, where are you going to go with it? Where have you been with party with consent, and where are you going to go with it? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's as much of a formal organization as as it sort of wants to be. I I, I like the feelings of calling it a movement um, to sort of uh, continue organic organic growth um, in the form of you know responding to requests from college students um, and and high school students now as well. Um, and in, in my journey in my first year out of college, um, where, you know, the sort of uh, campus project turned into something, uh, no, that was much more than that. Um, my main, my main effort has been, uh, traveling to different campuses who have asked me to, to speak about, um, party with consent and, and then to remain in contact with student leaders who are on those campuses. Um, and the really exciting uh, effort that uh, you know fits in line with this idea of organic, organic or holistic uh, growth is um, is that we're we're getting these students on conference calls with each other. So um, I, I hold certain values true around party with consent that uh, I experienced uh, at Colby and that I learned through that culture and I realize as similar as this dynamic is on a on a macro scale, um on a micro scale it's very specific to to different uh to different cultures and to different regions of the United States um uh, and the world. 
And so with that in mind, I always remind the students on campus as they sort of build this build this movement uh, is that this is you're the champion of your culture, um, and I'm and I'm here to support, and the movement is here to support, and our our uh, community slash network is here to support through these conference calls. Um, whether whether you need affirmation and the ways that you feel about sexual assault prevention, whether whether you are interested in discussing an idea out loud with people who are on the same page as you, or whether you're interested in some advice moving forward with your organization or moving or moving into this work past college, um, you know, trying to trying to be supportive um, and provide value in whatever way to the students on campus who are trying to uh, make a difference. And so, for for me, the the vision is in line with the researcher I, I referenced earlier, uh, Dr. David Lezak, who who suggests that. Um, who suggests that our, our effort on a cultural level with sexual assault should mirror that of, of MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, uh, and the effort to, uh, and, and in their effort, you know, adding language into our conversations such as uh, drunk driving, or I mean, uh, designated driver, um, to sort of combat this cultural phenomenon that was uh, drunk driving, that uh, during a time felt like a little edgy and felt a little cool. Um, now, amongst my generation and my experience, drunk driving, you know, when, if, you, if you hear somebody talking about thinking about doing that, you just think they're out of their mind. Uh, it's just culturally unacceptable. Um, and so thinking about that in the same way as far as, you know, this narrative around you're supposed to get, you're supposed to get people drunk in order to have sex with them, I think that uh, along a cultural lens, we can uh, change this conversation, add, add new, um, the, the way that the the piece around language that uh, I I hope to add is what I suggest about consent at times is you know the way that we keep it uh, in these uh, traditional traditional forms of thinking about men and women is we talk about giving and getting consent um, and in a in a couple pieces I suggested that we we could be moving we could move to suggesting that consent is something that's created um, and not necessarily uh, you know a transaction in the same way that I give money to um, a cashier, and then he gives me, um, you know, my groceries. Um, and so I think I think I'm very optimistic about, um, you know, that and how party with consent can play a role in changing the conversation that uh, will will bring us to a how place that you, uh, you getting people getting people drunk to have sex with them is as uh, socially taboo as uh, getting in a car while intoxicated. Um, you, and you mentioned the alcohol. I, 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 you know, it's uncomfortable for us to talk about rape and alcohol. I, I think I think it's very uncomfortable because rape is rape, and whether somebody is uh, able to make a decision or not, um, you know that uh, I don't even know how to say it. I don't care if you're walking naked down the street, you're drunk as a as a as a loon, and you're carrying a sex toy. You, no one has the right to assault you. Um, however, you bring in that factor of alcohol, and according to Rain, about 89% of campus sexual assault involves alcohol, uh, either with the perpetrator or the victim or both. So alcohol is no small thing. And, you know, going back to your, your article about the misconception myths, um, I, I 
I think that there's a lot of misconception about the use of alcohol, and I think a lot of people use uh, alcohol as as an excuse. I think a lot of people use alcohol as uh, a permission slip. Um, how, but when you bring in that whole notion of alcohol, how does that affect the dialogue when you're talking about consent on college campuses? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's uh, definitely uh, a difficult conversation, right? Because uh, the sort of cultural acceptance of underage drinking on college campus puts puts universities and colleges in a sort of difficult place where they uh, you know, nobody can outright say, like, we want to create this safe environment for, you know, students who are underage to drink alcohol. You know, like, that that just, like, can't be verbally said. Um, and so, you know, what happens when that's not verbally said or addressed? Then students find, you know, ways that are sort of, uh, you know, more dangerous to uh, to do this thing, do drinking while underage, uh, you know, uh, in in spaces where they uh where there's less supervision because the campuses can't say they they recognize it um but then there's just sort of more um you know more student control and uh and depending on the sort of uh intentions of those students it can be a sort of uh it can be a potentially dangerous situation um but all all that said uh the the you know i i i like to think i'm well read on this um but you know, others others could know more uh, and have. And I'm, I'm obviously not, I'm not the one who has done the research. But um, more often, it, I I believe it suggested that you know alcohol is used as a weapon, uh, more or less. So the idea that uh, somebody is just too drunk to remember uh, that's that's not actually the way that it happens. It's actually that you know the the victim is so drunk um, that in a traditional case, it being a woman, um, she doesn't know what's going on um and can consent and while while the while the perpetrator is uh probably engaging in some sort of uh, alcoholic activities they're um you know in control of their functioning and uh you know, uh not not necessarily like losing all their inhibitions so that they completely forget about uh, about other people's human rights human rights um that's one narrative around it. I think I think the other one, uh, you know, for me, uh, as I've been discussing, goes goes back to uh, masculinity and the way we think about gender. Is that you know this? So when I when I was in college, uh, when I was a freshman, I actually helped organize a group called Oasis, which was outing and activities for students initiating sobriety, um, because I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to drink in college. Um, and then with the help of some of my mentors, I mentioned Eric Barthold and Mark Tappan, uh, a, a professor at Colby. They really, they really brought to light that, um, you know, from from my lens as somebody who never drank alcohol before, I would see, you know, particularly men get drunk and do and do these acts of like vandalism or um, just say things that I couldn't, I couldn't imagine, you know, I, they would never say in their in their right mind. And so it's easy to sort of point to alcohol, and it's difficult to point to cultural norms around around gender, particularly masculinity, and and that's what um. Eric and Mark pointed to me, and then at that point, you know, when I was just sort of lined up with the law when I was 21, I, I began drinking alcohol, and when I was intoxicated, like, I, I had no urge to break things. I had no urge to to scream at people. I had no urge to hurt anybody. Um, and so when I experienced that, I realized, you know, this this is undoubtedly uh, an enabler, 
the alcohol, um, as you said, our permission slip has allowed people to do things. But, you know, the, the dynamic that there are a lot of people who drink alcohol and get extremely intoxicated and they uh, don't hurt anybody uh, sort of points to this points to this conversation around, you know, what what is happening within your subconscious, what is happening in, in your thoughts that you're not saying out loud during the day, which is, you know, obviously causing people to think of you as a great person, a good guy. Um, but what's actually percolating that allows you to become somebody who, you know, may perpetrate sexual assault, may throw things out the window, may uh, commit, you know, just uh, violence against other people? What What is actually percolating in, in your brain uh, subconsciously? Or, well, and a lot know, of people do see alcohol as a permission slip. I, 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 You hear people say all the time, well, I was drunk, I was drunk. It's like they do that to get permission to do what they wanted to do anyway. Um, and it becomes their excuse for doing what they wanted to anyway. It's almost like a, a, a socially acceptable um, get-out-of-jail-free card um, if you say that you did something that was inappropriate or whatever, and, and you did it because you were drunk. And then it's the, the kind of the, the social acceptance is, oh, well, see, he's not a bad guy. He did it because he was drunk. I mean, what could he do? He was drunk. So I see the whole alcohol thing as a, a great big giant permission slip, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know whether definitely. that's just me, but that's how I see it. Oh, definitely. Um, Jonathan, if somebody was interested in your movement, how do they find out more information about it? Uh, they can uh, go to our website, uh, partywithconsent.org, and uh, we have, uh, if you scroll down to the bottom, there's a place to um, there's a place to share share a comment or send an email, and that'll go that'll go straight to me. Um, and uh, there's there's like a little equation at the bottom to prove that you're not a, a robot. Um, and yeah, that's that's the best way to get in contact with me. Um, you know, if you're, if you're interested in our our, our work as well, and uh, you know the places that we've been, uh, that that website, uh, which is going to be updated uh, very soon. Our, our blog specifically is going to be updated soon. Um, it details uh, what's going on and uh, you know where where I'm where I'm going to speak and uh, how the movement is is evolving. So, Jonathan, you're a graduate now, and you're staying with the movement. You're still working with this movement. Is this going to be a career for you? It's a great question. Um, I I want to do this um, as long as it remains helpful. Um, and so with, you know, uh, sexual assault awareness coming up, I've been asked to go to a number of campuses and do a number of things. And, uh, you know, as long, as long as I'm being asked, uh, to do to do more, I wanna I wanna continue um, I wanna continue to do it, um, and you know seeing seeing there's definitely um, after this first year out of college, I just wanted to see if it had legs, and I I believe it does, um, and I think with that there's sort of you know bigger bigger visions of uh, you know formally fi- finalizing a 501c3 nonprofit status and uh, you know having having uh, more flexibility and options as far as uh, bigger visions from there um but the short answer is yeah i'd love i'd love to continue this as my career good and um 
you mentioned that you were an only child. Does your mom help you out at all with any of this? So is she on board with it, or does she offer advice? What does does your mom play a role in your movement? Um, yes. I mean, it's a it's a loaded question. Um, I remember one time uh, <laughs> when I was when I was building. I'm a parties. mother, Jonathan. Of course, I I'm going to ask well, questions about mothers. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, well, on on the ground, uh, you know, my my mom after after my father father died uh endured you know sort of like what i could sort of see uh subtly is just all all of the stereotypes play out um around gender um in the form of you know this this woman this widowed woman is weak um you know she doesn't know what to do with uh certain responsibilities that her her husband has left her um she needs to find a husband immediately um and and I saw I, I saw my mom debunk all those myths um, in ways that in ways that you know when when people in high school or college were saying women were weak I was I was very like even around the topic of sexual assault like I, I was very confused because I always saw my mom uh, have an incredible amount of uh, will and uh, almost some like almost uh, just a, a extreme pride uh, and you know that that. So that that uh, you know is is part of the subconscious story uh, you know around around um, when I talk about the longer story of where party consent came from. So I mean, uh, you know, I'm pretty I'm I'm confident that if it were not for her, um, that I wouldn't be working on this in the first place. Um, more specifically, I remember one time uh, the parents of my basketball team were putting together um, a dinner for all of us after one of our games and. A bunch of the guys uh, were sort of nabbing up all the extra cups because uh, they were going to throw a party that night and they didn't want to pay money for cups. And <laughs> that's when my mom's that's when my mom suggested she said, you know, you have these pink cups that say party with consent. Why don't you make some red cups that say party with consent? Because they seem to really want them and they want them at their parties. And yeah, I, I was like, that's brilliant. Um, and I I moved forward I moved forward with that uh, with that idea. Uh, thanks to her, and um, it sounds like you had a wonderful role model in your mother, um, and uh, I, I, she sounds like a really cool lady. I wish I could meet her, Jonathan. We're almost out of time here, and I want to thank you for coming on board and talking about your movement, talking about campus sexual assault, a uh, huge problem, and um, it is definitely uh, a problem that we uh, are going to be hearing more about, especially, as I said, with last fall, the president coming forward and mandating and demanding certain actions to be taken place, and college campuses becoming much more aware that they need to have a certain level of responsibility, but no level of responsibility exceeds that of the individual, and I think that's what your movement is all about. There is a quote by um and you know the 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 quote i i can't find out who this person is but it's a quote from a woman named sokolo uh, maybe you're familiar with her jonathan but her quote is i can't educate a student who is predatory not to rape what i can do is teach people around him to recognize the signs and I think that that's something that we all need to do. We all need to educate ourselves. We all need to recognize the signs and then figure out what we can do about it. Jonathan, thank you for joining us uh, after our show is over. Don't forget that you can go online and you can hear the show over again on our archives, on our webpage, uh, www.blogtalkradio.com. 
uh, com slash three women three ways. Please join us next week and we again tackle a topic of workplace bullying. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways.